Welcome to the Disability and Podcast, bringing together thoughtful discussion and debate. This month, artist and creative practitioner Steph Robson, aka Hello Little Lady, chats with award-winning theatre maker and equality strategist Vicky Rayford Sinnott. Steph asks Vicky about the importance of regional identity, the Northeast's role in disability arts history, and the current regional and national landscape for disabled artists. Hello, I'm Steph, and today I'm hosting the Disability and Podcast. And for this episode, I'm interviewing Vicky Reford Sinnott. Hello, Vicky. Would you like to introduce yourself? Hello, Steph. How lovely to be here. I'm Vicky Reford Sinnott, and I am a tall white woman in my 50s. Today, I have teal and pink hair. I'm wearing dark rimmed glasses, a teal scarf and a black top. Um, And I am a playwright and television writer and director and longtime activist. And I like supporting organisations to improve and increase their disability equality knowledge. Thanks, Vicky. And I am a petite 40-odd-year-old woman who is also based in the Northeast, and I am a multidisciplinary artist um, who centres my practice in visual, participatory and many other practices around the lived experiences of dwarfism. Um, and in this particular episode, we're actually going to be talking about Vicky's vast experience um, in disability arts in the Northeast, which I can't wait for us to find out more about. So, Vicky, thank you for joining the podcast today. Um, the focus is on regional voices. Um, and I guess, can you outline the importance of the Northeast in developing disability arts in the UK? Could you just give us like a history of it, of how it came about and how it developed? I'd love to, yeah. Um, I think it's important to say, first of all, that regional voices are essential in the national picture. Um, But I think that, um, you know, each region of the country, each country in the British Isles has its own particular cultures, idiosyncrasies, and they're really complex and I think distinct. And so it's important to talk about them, but they shouldn't really be separated from the national landscape or from national significance, which I think historically sometimes we've done. We always look to the South as if the South is the national picture. We have to put our flag in the ground and say we're part of the national scene. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. The Northeast does have a really rich past of activism and politicisation for all sorts of reasons, you know, for our, our social and historical contexts in industry. Um, but in terms of, of disability arts, I think the North Northeast's been, it's a bit of a hidden jewel in lots of ways. You know, in the beginnings, in, in the 80s, we had the Lawnmowers, which is a learning disability theatre company for people who don't know. They were set up in 1986 with the support of them wifeys who were a, a community oriented group. 
um, they, the, the, the lawnmowers were the first sort of self-organised disability arts group in the northeast, and they still go today, and they're internationally renowned. You know, which is is brilliant. They hit the scene with shows like the Big Sex Show. They were never mincing their words about, um, you know, about what <laughs> disabled people want to talk about, and they they produced a brilliant theatre show, a brilliant video about it. Um, and they firmly put learning disability culture on the map. And then there were other amazing people involved at the beginnings, like Jeff Armstrong, who sadly is no longer with us. But he um, he really championed disability arts in London. He was in at the beginning of, of London Disability Arts Forum. Then he set up the National Disability Arts Forum, which was based in Newcastle. Um, and he worked alongside powerhouses like Paula Greenwell, who was a phenomenal activist in the Northeast, involved in all sorts of disabled, you know, disabled people's organisations. We had other people like Stuart Bracking, Tom Shakespeare, Colin Cameron, and my very long time, long term friend, Karen Shader, who was part of the Fugitives punk band. Um, very, you know, politicised, influenced by the brilliant Ian Stanton. Um, but really who stayed with the disability arts movement in this region and helped to shape it. She's she's good, good humoured. She's brilliant for a laugh. She's a very witty, witty communicator, which, I, you know, I think is essential when you're trying to get a message across. But she's a brilliant songwriter as well. So I, I feel like you have to acknowledge the people who paved the way. Um, and she was part of Tyneside Disability Arts in sort of the mid 90s, late 90s. And and that was one of the most, um, oh, what's the word, active sort of cultural organisations led by disabled people. And they did comedy, satire, cabarets, and they really brought the scene alive, you know, in the northeast. So there's, yeah, there's there's several decades worth of work Um there that got got us started so I think we're indebted to them in the northeast. Thinking about your own role within that what has been your personal highlights of some of the key um, moments in dis- disability arts in the northeast yeah and in the UK? Mm, yeah well I think gosh it takes me back, you know, I, I am somebody who wears rose-tinted spectacles, definitely, but I am such a believer in community and I love thinking back to the moments when the community really came together. I'm I'm a real collectivist. I think my first connections with the disability arts sector were I had set up a learning disability women's group in Hartlepool called um, the Moving On Project and... I wasn't identifying as a disabled person at this point. I wasn't politicised around disability. I had lots of lessons yet to learn. But because we were one of, you know, this quite unusual group, a, a women's learning disability group who were very visual, very vocal, uh, we did get invited to loads of disability arts events. And so I can remember one in particular, Spennymoor Leisure Centre, a disability arts cabaret, an audience of 200 people. Can you believe? Wow. 200 people. And there That's we amazing. were, the, the moving on group, talking about their <laughs> mm-hmm. passions. But also on the bill, there was Ian Stanton, the fugitives, and it was compared by the most wonderful character called Mavis Dishcloth, played by Sue Vass, who was another person in at the beginning. And Mavis Dishcloth, obviously, 
was there to tell us about how brilliant she was at making dishcloths at a time when that's what people thought we were good for. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Making dishcloths yeah. and, mm-hmm. and, bas- and basket weaving. So there, there weren't mm-hmm. many opportunities. But, but these kind of cabarets exploded onto the, the art scene and really put to bed lots of myths about disability. And it was a time of, oh, such a force for change, you know. And um, I think people really appreciated each other's work. We'd have people doing music, drama, comedy, poetry, any any art form that you can imagine, film. Um, and so, yeah, it was brilliant memories of that time. I was also personally out of the country for almost four years, from 1999 to 2003, because I was working in the in disability arts in the Republic of Ireland. And a constant source of support, nourishment, community was um, the Etc. newsletter that came from the National Disability Arts Forum. And I think it was every Monday or Tuesday, it would plop into your inbox and you'd be in touch with everything that was going on all, you know, all around the country. You'd hear about, um, you know, theatre shows, dance productions, artists working in new forms and pushing the boundaries. And that was a brilliant connection for people. And that was that was before Disability Arts Online, really. And obviously Disability Arts Online has mushroomed and grown and grown to be this mm. amazing journal and active living thing about disability arts in terms of visual arts there was quite a special exhibition on at the lang art gallery this was before my time i I wasn't involved in this but again it was it was quite controversial actually um the lang art gallery um now I, i suppose could be described as a little bit more commercial it has to you know like many art galleries it has to find a way to pay its way but but back then it commissioned um, the Unleashed exhibition of disabled artists from all around the country, included people like T- Tony Hayton, who's a complete legend in sculpture and, you know, visual arts. Um, and I think his piece was um, Great Britain from a Wheelchair was included in that. But that that felt like such a time of optimism. You know, we'd, we'd made it into a big gallery and were being taken seriously. And it, it did, It co- you know, there was controversy around it because disabled people hadn't been seen in this way socially or culturally before with such loud, bold, confident, self-determined voices. So that, I think that was, a, that was quite a key turning point. Oh, fantastic. Um, I mean, I've got just got so many questions just within that one answer. Um, but I guess, you know, I mean... I'm 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 going off a little bit here, <laughs> but what I mean, at what point did you become an activist or collectivist or you know you became politicized about you know being an artist and being passionate about the northeast and arts and what have you? What was that? Was there a key moment or does it happen gradually? What happened? That's a really good question, and it's it's something. From my perspective, because I wasn't born as a disabled person, although in terms of mental health, you could argue that I was. I just wasn't aware of it until my teens, really. I didn't know I didn't know I was different in that way until my teens. But I also didn't know that mental health fitted under the disability umbrella at that time because nobody's nobody's telling you, you know, even now. 
people ask, do I fit under that umbrella or not? Uh, am I allowed to join this club or not? <laughs> but um, mm. in, in terms of politicisation, I'd always been quite a political animal, I have to say. I came through punk, punk rock, wanted to challenge the, you know, challenge the status quo, ask all the big questions. Um, and then I arrived at feminism when I went to university. My eyes were completely opened. Um, my world opened up when I, I learned about women in theatre and that's stayed in my heart ever since. But then um, I think around university time, my mental health status changed and I became uh, less well with it. Um, and I, yeah, I wasn't sure quite where to put myself. When I set up my first theatre company, I was drawn to people who were marginalised. And I think that's why I had an affinity with the Moving On group that I talked about, the women's group in Hartlepool that I set up. And then, you know, I was I was kind of drawn a little bit into the disability arts world, but still didn't quite know how to identify at that time. And it wasn't until I went to the Republic of Ireland and I had my... Um, I had some political awakenings there and it was through through people like Donald Tolan, who was an amazing disability activist, sadly, someone else who's no longer with us. Um, I brought Matt Fraser's show, Seal Boy Freak, over to Dublin. And that that was a seminal moment for me because um, I absolutely understood what disability was and aligned myself with, with those politics instantly. And sometimes it takes a piece of art to do that. Um, and then I slowly, slowly worked my way through, processed things, talked to some of my um, disabled artist colleagues over there uh, and who had different different views on it, you know. But um, it, so it was a, it was around that ta- that time when I was in Dublin. Um, and I think because of because of Matt Fraser's play. And I also worked with an amazing artist called Rosaline McDonough, who is an incredibly accomplished um, traveller woman who's disabled is a phenomenal playwright and I had the privilege of working with her on her first piece of theatre um, and again mm-hmm. when you're working with somebody else you're sort of also working through your own stuff so yeah the politics kicked in um, around then and so that for me that was the sort of the mid to late 90s. So I was going to say like so you, you know you, you've been you started off in the northeast, and then you went over to the Republic of Ireland, and then you've come back over to the northeast. So, how has the northeast, you know, that's given you also a regional identity? Yeah. Um. How has that played out in your own work? You know, because you've got the national identity going on, but how has the northeast specifically, like, shaped you in terms of? your regional the regional identity and your artwork I grew up in the East Durham coal field um and my world straddled the world of the miners who worked underground and small scale farmers who worked on the ground um and so you know both of my grandparents were one was a miner one was a, a small scale farmer my dad was a farmer The land was in his blood and life didn't always feel like a struggle, but there always felt like there were these external pressures and tensions. And certainly that that played out, obviously, with the miners in in the 80s. 
And so I didn't in my life didn't have a lot of stereotypical women. Um, and I don't know if such a thing exists, if you know what I mean. Um, they they were women who weren't like um, models on the telly or frilly pink Barbies or they were women who rolled their sleeves up and, and got on with things, um, which I hope is what I do to this day, you know. Um, but I think in, in that sense, there's something undeniably northern about that, about that environment that I grew up in. And that formed me, you know, those early, early experiences absolutely shaped the kind of woman that I was destined to become, I suppose. But I also wanted a little bit more than was on offer culturally. I, do, I mean, I don't know how these things happen, but I I was drawn to the arts. I loved the theatre of punk. I loved the costumes. I loved the fact you could reinvent yourself and look stunning as that, you know, as I thought. You could walk through the middle of your village and turn heads and feel empowered and, and politicised. So I think I think those those things came about because I'm I'm from a northeast tiny village. I do also have a strange relationship with the northeast and I think lots of disabled people do because unfortunately ableism it's everywhere mm-hmm. you know culturally institutionally politically it's it's a very misunderstood form of discrimination and so you know I am from the northeast with great pride but I also see that internally we've still got some some things to sort out really and the old-fashioned flat cap image of the man in his allotment or at the club with his pint or whatever couldn't be further from what the North East has been to me, which is, has never been monocultural. You know, it's always been multicultural and intersectional. Like a minor, like, you know, yeah. that's like the traditional view. And that's like, right. I mean, I'm, I'm in my early 40s and that's, you know... No, that's <laughs> not how I know the North East, you know. It's Absolutely. Like, it's such a culturally rich, from the top to the bottom of the region, you know. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it is. No, you're absolutely right. It's um, It's a complex region. And I think, like you say, we've got a very rich mix of cultures here. Um, and that's what excites me about this region. And that's that definitely feeds into my work and wanting to make better work and work that better represents, reflects or interprets, you know, who who we are. How would you describe the people of the Northeast in term in cultural terms? In cultural terms. Oh, it's such a hard question to answer in a way. But I think Because I, I know think, there's not one like monolithic that, that's it. Thing. Yeah, there's there's not. But what I would say is um, that everyday culture is rich and and people see that, um, you know, songs, music, poetry, whether it's in advertising, whether it's on the telly, whether it's the stories people tell each other, um, and my goodness, the sense of humour in the North East. It's a little bit like Scotland for me in that sense. The sense of humour that I relish in those old stories where there's a bit of mischief and a bit of trickery, you know, so you can surprise whoever you're telling the story to. 
Um, that's certainly, you know, there's a history of that in my family. I'm sure there is in, in other people's. And so I think humour plays a big part. Um, and I don't know if that's to do with uh, probably a mix of we all need a release. We all need to feel better about stuff. Um, but also, you know, a bit of self-deprecation um, and a bit of satire, definitely, because I think we're a very knowing region. You know, I think we know that we've been underserved. Um, the way that everything's divvied up across the country isn't exactly fair. And I don't mean to idealise the region, you know, because I think it's fu- it is full of full of problems as everywhere is. And, and that's what I was saying about the, the battle that I have around ableism. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, well, we could talk more about that. But I think just in terms of answering your question, the there's there's a lot there's diversity here and i think finally we we're, we're getting to see that you know there's some organizations arts organizations in the northeast who are genuinely committed to reflecting who our communities are not not in the stereotype not in monoculture you know white culture um but in all of our glory and um i think that's so important you know I was going to say, like, how do you feel, like, how how our regional identity has been marginalised in the arts, you know, and what challenges around that have you faced in the past? And, you know, is there any evidence of that now? Good question. Yeah, I think... I think that the the regional identities generally are marginalised, but I would say from my, from my perspective, sadly the north the northeast there's there's a mixture of things going on. I think when you're under resourced, um, as a region, and I'm talking culturally and politically, you know, not as invested in, then I think you you naturally feel marginalised, and I, I think there's something we do internalise or have internalised in the northeast, which has been well, we might not be good enough, you know. What what if we're not good enough? And sometimes that means that we don't actually shout about the excellence that's here um, quite enough, and I, I believe that we should, you know, do that more. But also in terms of disability arts, and I can't fully explain why this is, but I do think quite often we've been missed off the the national map with that. You know, when I've seen reports written or I've seen videos made about disability and deaf arts across the country and there's a gap, there's no Northeastern artist featured there or which it, it, it feels I don't know. It feels difficult because at one time, um, some of our listeners will remember this. There was what kind of gets called the golden age of disability arts, where many, many regions around the country did have a disability arts development organisation that was led by disabled people. Um, In our region, it was Northern Disability Arts Forum, which became Arcadia. There were lots of ways that we did come together nationally. We'd, you know, these regional disability arts organisations would forge national alliances and when there's an infrastructure there it's much easier to do that but unfortunately over time the organisations slowly disappeared funding was withdrawn and things like that and so then you I feel like you have to work twice as hard if you're from a northern region to get yourself back on the map again 
And and for me, that's part of, you know, my struggle as an artist to be taken seriously with national significance. I think also within the region, we still have to make the case consistently as disabled people that we should have a slice of that pie or a bigger piece of the pie, please, because, you know, we're a bit fed up of um, of having the crumbs and that can be exhausting, can't it? Yeah. I'm one of the, well, I'll just ask you an additional question to that. Mm. Like, what do you think that the internet has played, like, what the role has helped um, platform Northeast Arts more? I would say in my experience, it probably has. Um, So pre-pandemic, I think that was definitely a brilliant way to connect and communicate. Um, And I think where we'd seen that disinvestment that I talked about, where disabled artists weren't supported by those regional organisations, Um, At the same time, the advent of the internet meant that we sort of rethought how we did things and we um, found other ways to connect and set up online groups. And I think for lots of disabled people, meeting people online, other like-minded people, has been an amazing source of release and connection um, and, and identity. You know, and I think being introduced to that releases you from some of the isolation. Um, And then I think within the pandemic, um, it had a huge role to play. I don't want to underestimate, though, how many people don't have access to the Internet and were still left out. Mm. And I think for, for lots of people, that's true. Um, You know, and I think we have to do something about that. Having said that, I think lots of people did. In, in the pandemic because it became one of the only ways to communicate and here here we are talking on Zoom and for me that was a lifeline. I think in term, I'm thinking in terms of like art and disability arts and also in terms of funding like all of a sudden there were fundings available for online projects which traditionally in the current funding landscape that we find ourselves in, which is very much place-based. Um, you know, we suddenly, I think maybe disability artists and groups maybe actually found themselves actually being funded for projects that they wouldn't necessarily have had otherwise. And so in that terms, I think, you know, I thought that was a very good experience, not necessarily in general, but like yeah. for disability arts in the North East to actually platform because you did your, you know, you, you did your various commissions throughout that period, yeah. you know, and you platformed the, the new generation of artists that have come through from the North East. Um, so I guess, you know, what has the impact of that been and has there been a legacy with that or... Has it translated into a post-pandemic world? What's your thoughts on that? Mm. No, you're absolutely spot on about um, the the way that funding radically changed very quickly uh, during the pandemic and the online opportunities that opened up. Um, I think in lots of ways were really impressive. I think that actually disabled artists and disability arts organisations were at the forefront of some of that. 
Um, and I think I know with the Disconsortia Collective, you know, at the time we were um, we were meeting regularly. We had ambitions for the region and um, we noted that disabled people were probably going to be more disadvantaged in lots of ways during the pandemic and quickly formulated correspondence with the Arts Council, asking them, you know, to, to, to think about that and to think about including access in any emergency funding they were providing. I would say it felt like there were two years of fairly solid, in community terms, I'm not talking about necessarily individual disabled people who who might be audience members or participants rather than artists. But I think in terms of artists, that community of interest, that cultural community was relevant and like you said, it wasn't it wasn't place based necessarily. And I think um, I was involved in some regional projects online, uh, like you said, commissioned some regional disabled artists. But also there were some national commissions in there as well. It was important. I think it connected people up from around the country. How do you feel like it is in a post pandemic world and like what efforts do you think are evident or maybe not in the changing landscape of the arts and cultural sector at the moment? I think it's a very interesting time. I think I now find it a time of concern again. Um, I feel like Lots of disabled artists had opportunities to make work during the pandemic. We could test form. We could try out different ways of communicating different ideas and experiences. Um, access was firmly on the agenda. I felt like regional organisations listened and wanted to learn from disabled people. You know, I found myself and other disabled artists invited to talk about accessibility um, I'm always careful when I talk about accessibility to say that access is the nuts and bolts of um, equality. It's the things that need to be in place as the basics from which to build a much bigger picture of, of equality, uh, which is cultural equality and disabled led work. I think that's a harder message to get across. But I am delighted to be able to have conversations with significant organisations in the region. I genuinely do get a feeling that there's a will around change because of some of the, the conversations that happened um, during the pandemic. But, I, do, I, I, you know, I can't deny that the interest around accessibility has slipped considerably. I think the fact that lots of disabled people still need hybrid opportunities to take part in the arts has slipped considerably and people just want to get back to how it was before. And unfortunately, I'm really sorry, but it's not going to get back to how it was before because we've all been changed um, in lots of ways. That means audiences have changed. It means participants have changed. It means what people want has changed. And so I think really the arts sector, the cultural sector, needs to take stock of that and have a good review. What specific things we are actually worried about? You know, like things are sliding. I think um, 
I think that because things are so uncertain generally in the arts, you know, I think organisations are trying to recover from something huge, which really impacted on whether organisations were going to survive or not. And some organisations are still struggling to survive, no matter how well resourced they might appear to be, you know, in terms of their commitments and um, in terms of uh, what they what they want to achieve. I think that organisations are quite strapped for cash. Um, and so what that what that means is that diversity moves further and further down the agenda, in my experience. Unfortunately, things that are seen as either luxuries, never thought I'd be perceived as a luxury mm. as a disabled <laughs> person, but, um, you know, work that um, might not be perceived as reaching a majority uh, or where where organisations feel that they can't take risks, you know, they're risk averse. Um, they're frightened about whether a disability show will sell as well as something else will. That they are concerns for me. I think um, when organisations are programming work, they're doing it to protect themselves. And so I think if they don't fully understand disability and disabled people. In, as audience members or as visitors to, uh, you know, museums or galleries, then it's it's possible we'll slip, slip further down the list. The counter I would give to that, though, is an example of something I've just been involved in. If I could just mention the um, st- our stomping grounds festival of learning disability culture at ARC, which grew from a tiny, tiny seed from Full Circle, which is a learning disability theatre company I work with, and they just wanted to have a special day that brought people together after being apart for so long. Anyway, it grew into a two-day festival, of course. Um, and it, the ideas got bigger and bigger. And we did it as safely as we could. But over 500 people came to the festival wow. um, over the two days. Fantastic. And that was phenomenal. The building was alive. It was buzzing. So I think if, if organisations address their fear of risk and think about oh gosh you know where are there some examples of really good practice where communities have come into buildings on a large scale what's gone into that what's you know what's been the turnaround what's the relationships that have been developed there that have have made something like that happen and you can actually change your audiences and and you know bring new audiences in on on quite a decent scale so, you know, I hope that as as organisations fight their way out of this um, this phase, that they do rebuild themselves and we do see them prepared to take risks, notional risks. I don't think it's a risk to programme disability related work, but I know that lots of programmers do, unfortunately. Obviously, the arts have got to survive and they have to work to a business model, but I think we need to think about new business models for different kinds of audiences. I might have gone off off topic slightly, but I think that these are all important considerations when we're talking about, well, what is the landscape like now? One thing that, that does excite me, if I can tell you about a project that I'm involved with, um, which is called Cultural Shift. Um, between 2015 and 2018, uh, along with Ark in Stockton, who I find to be a beacon um, of, of really good practice 
a brilliant ethos around disabled people and they really support disabled artists and audiences. I was lucky enough to develop with them a project called Cultural Shift, which was a model of practice um, which gave space to disabled led work in mainstream venues. And really it's about power sharing. It's about cultural democracy, um, you know, and how big institutions, which comparatively to disability organisations or to freelancers, are very well resourced, um, have some stability. You know, I say that cautionary, but more stability and certainty certainly than than freelancers do. And so th- this was a, a model that, te- you know, tested some of that power sharing. How do organisations embrace disabled led work and and try to move on from the inclusive model, which um, is an important model. But the inclusive model has lots of limitations on it because it says um, you're welcome to come into what's here already, which isn't necessarily about disabled people's voices. They're making things accessible, which is important. But disabled people, we need to see ourselves reflected in culture. And so um, this project, Cultural Shift, did that. And there was lots of learning from it. There's been a legacy ever since. But the exciting thing is that we've now got six regional partners on board and we're doing an R&D for the region so that we can kind of set up a three-year programme that creates an imprint for the Northeast region to do better in terms of disabled led work in publicly funded organisations. And that's so exciting. I'm consulting people on that at the moment, venues, disabled artists. And the, the, the bottom line is that art will be at the heart of it, which means that disabled artists are at the centre of it. Um, and so it'll be about commissions, new work, residencies, Um, and supporting artists while the organisations develop and learn to do disability equality better. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Oh, that sounds amazing. Um, So is that, are you involved in that as yourself or as Little Cog or is that part of your... Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's me really. I, I, I came up with this phrase, equality strategist. Which means it's because there's a funny little bit of my brain that loves thinking about strategies for change. And we can only do it if we are strategic and tactical and clever and cute. You know, we have to be mischief makers and come up with with new ways in, which is why art's at the heart of it. But um, yeah, no, it, it, it is me really as um as a freelancer, I think. Um, and who knows where that, you know, where that will take us. Do you feel that the Northeast cultural organisations are actually quite open to talking to disabled artists and being open to um having being challenged for the way they are run or engage with artists? I think there's a real mix, if I'm honest. I think, you know, I, I have a particular perspective. I've got a historical relationship with some of the region's organisations from when I was the chief executive of Arcadia. Mm. And my job there was to knock on doors and to keep knocking on doors. And there was a lot during that time, there was a lot less reception. And it was, a, you know, it was a tricky, um, exhausting time. I think genuinely there are people within the organisations who get 
cultural democracy who know that the arts have to be about our communities. You can't keep going with that old fashioned, almost, you know, stuffy colonial approach to the arts, which um, is so outdated. So on the one hand, there will be organisations with really good people in them. What we need to make happen is that 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 goodness <laughs> that that um, transfers from individuals to the organisations. So, so that best, the org- best, sorry, yeah, best practice. Absolutely. And so it it's, gets embedded in the organisation and we need to see more of that because it definitely isn't yet. And that's partly because mainstream organisations either haven't been able to, haven't wanted to or have had constraints on them about why they haven't gone down that, you know, the disability equality route and embedding that in their organisations. I think people are scared of it. I think they think it costs a lot of money. I think they think it's really complicated and what if they get it wrong? But then there are some organisations that are still really old-fashioned. A few years ago now, I went to a creative case meeting um, and I was one of the few, few... Uh, people there who were from a diverse community it was mainly NPOs and um, well they were probably RFOs at that time uh, regularly funded organizations and I can remember being seated at this table where a man who was the director of an organization was rolling his eyes sighing and saying are we still talking about this exasperated that he was having to put his time and energy into people who were different to him really not getting you know he was there to serve his communities um and had no idea about who was in his communities from things that he went on to say and unfortunately that attitude is there in the arts it it, it still is i do have hope though i'm an eternal optimist mm-hmm. i think you have to be if you're an activist it's fine to take time out and rest um and not everybody has to be an activist. So I don't want people to think that, you know, there's a pressure there to be an activist. Um, it's just unfortunate when you're a disabled artist, a lot of the time you do have to self-advocate. So you are fighting a battle as well as just being an artist. You, you do fight battles. But I do think, and certainly from the conversations I'm having with these six organisations at the moment, another organisation who I'm lucky enough to have been commissioned by as an artist, um live theatre I'm having some brilliant conversations with them and you know their 50th anniversary program really excites me under their new director Jack McNamara he's programmed more disability-led work than ever before at live theatre and that is so exciting there's a real buzz you know there's a real buzz around that so that in a theatre context in in you know my art form I feel passionate about that. But also the Cultural Shift Partners who we're doing the R&D with um, are across art forms. They include museums and galleries, music, um, modern art, uh, theatre, interdisciplinary work, cross-disciplinary work. So that feels exciting as well. The openness that I'm finding there and the people there know that they need to embed it in the organisations and they know they need to understand more about the cultural equality of disabled people. I think I've just got one other question in terms of, you know, regional identity, like 
for the northeast and you know how are disability artists from the region actually beginning to you know create a new identity for the region you know how are we contributing to that conversation I think that's one of the most exciting things for me that I've seen in the last um, 10 years really is that a, a new generation of disabled artists and what I mean by that is that there's um, a new level of engagement there's a new um, level of people identifying as disabled people at the moment and so that community is incredibly diverse and how those disabled people view themselves is really refreshing. There are new new dialogues about what it is to be a disabled person and how how people want to be, you know, regarded and identified. I think the other thing is that we see new art forms, cross art forms and really experimental work. And when I say experimental, I don't mean it's not accessible to audiences. It's very accessible to audiences. It's just that new thought has gone into it. And that really excites me. I think there's a group of incredibly exciting artists in this region. And I just want to see them fly. You know, I want opportunities there for artists and and for doors to open in, in our biggest venues. And how are we contributing to the national conversation around disability arts do you know what I mean like you know how what is our involvement is that is it prominent could it be better how do we do that you know what what would your ideas be what are your thoughts I think there still aren't enough places for those conversations to be happening what was really good when we were um coming out of the lockdowns phase Mm. of the pandemic I hosted four crucial conversations, they were called, and they were with disabled artists to think about new ways of working. What could a new normal possibly look like? Because not everybody wanted to go back to how it was before. It wasn't that great for disabled people. So what some of the changes that had been made possible during the pandemic, we wanted that to continue. So I think um, there's some real thought leaders in the Northeast um I, I really do believe that i mean there's people um lady kit's work is phenomenal you know in terms of social engagement how um co-creation projects can inform artistic policy how we create safe spaces for people simon McKeown, who is uh, a long-time disabled artist with international reputation uh, is a professor now at teesside university um, he is he is doing some phenomenal work on an international scale around how disabled people have been represented in in very modern art forms, you know, in dig- in the digital world, in games. Your own work, Steph, is is revolutionary, is pioneering, you know, in terms of um, the dwarfism community, but also the, not not just that, not for that reason alone. The, the work that you do is so open and accessible, but incredibly experimental, you know, and when we don't see a lot, a lot of that work. And so your voice uh, is incredibly important to the disability arts movement in this region, but also nationally. I hope people do, you know, pay attention. I think we need to see a few more national gatherings of disability arts. Mm-hmm. We need, we do need to have some more uh, opportunities to come together and share work. 
um, and, and share the thinking. You know, I think it's important, particularly at this time. Well, thank you very much, Vicky, um, for your chat today. Um, do you have a website or something uh, that you'd like to share with the listeners? Oh, thank you. Um, I think probably a good overview of the work that I'm involved with would be on Little Cog's website. So, yeah, if you check out www.littlecog.co.uk, then um, that'll tell you lots more about not only um, our work, but the work of other disabled artists in the region. Well, thank you for being on today's episode of the Disability and Podcast. Um, And best of luck with future projects. Thank you so much. My absolute pleasure. It's been brilliant to talk to you, Steph. Thank you for listening. We do hope you enjoyed this episode of Disability And. Please join us next month when Paul Wilshaw chats with founders of Triple C and the Disability Arts Network community, Cherry Lee Houston and Melissa Johns.